Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Today, we celebrate our 50th podcast, and I enthusiastically thank our loyal and growing audience. Our mission from podcast number one two years ago has been to provide an unbiased source of economic and financial perspectives directly aimed to help your career, and your financial planning. Our initial podcasts, which are still all available on our related UCLA Extension website and SoundCloud pages, prepared the foundation for better understanding economic, employment, and financial issues. Our early podcasts provided insights that helped answer these kinds of questions. How come more and more people are out of a job, but the unemployment rate is reported lower and lower? That was a question we asked in 2019 when we began, before COVID. That's a valid question today also. This issue was with us pre-COVID when we began our podcasts and is with us now as improvements are reported each month. You now know that reported unemployment data does not include the growing millions who have simply given up trying to find a job, and today's unemployment rate in reality is closer to 10% than 5%. Why are so many jobs going unfilled while so many have given up finding a job? You also know from past podcasts that the unfilled jobs are quite different than those jobs that were lost. Early on, as just one example, we pointed out the ramp up in Amazon warehouse and driver jobs, while brick and mortar retailers lost multiples of these new Amazon jobs in areas of customer sales and service positions. I suspect many also recognize that the FANG, that's Facebook, Amazon, Google, Netflix, and Apple, the FANG companies created jobs, but these jobs are far fewer than the jobs lost in the traditional company sector. Higher paying jobs are available in smaller numbers to a more highly qualified workforce. Many lower paying, lower skilled jobs continue to be lost and continue to be replaced by technology. And now we're thinking about the vulnerability of taxi and truck drivers through driverless vehicles and technologies that are expected to be here in a short number of years. We frequently discuss the impact of the Federal Reserve in not only issuing vast amounts of new dollars in order to buy the growing amounts of U.S. government debt, but to keep interest rates down while fueling the uptrends in the bond and stock markets. The upcoming financial asset sell-offs ultimately will impact all of us from our savings accounts to our bonds, our bond funds, to stock market investments. As technology has totally replaced market makers and well-financed specialist firms, who will be the buyers when the next selling wave starts? We should also recognize that passive investing has become far more important in the past 10 to 20 years. In other words, exchange-traded funds, mutual funds are far more important and account for a very large percentage of private sector holdings. Who's going to buy when individuals are selling their exchange-traded funds? Who will the buyers be in a general sell-off? It used to be well-financed specialist firms and well-financed market makers. There used to be a layer of intermediaries who cushioned a lot of these quick movements. That layer is gone. 
Don't worry, we won't try to summarize the prior 49 podcasts today, but they all do fit together quite nicely. They not only fit together, but support our conclusion that we made well over a year ago that substantial inflation is on the way. Putting modesty aside for a minute, our loyal podcast participants know that we were on the forefront of preparing for high inflation well before the media and the government spokespeople brought it up. For our 50th podcast, I'll bring several of the world's top money managers up close and personal today. Before I do, there is another 50th anniversary to recognize. 50 years ago, the U.S. found itself treading water in a stagnant economy coupled with high inflation. Remember your basic economic course many years ago? Inflation was supposed to come from a fully employed workforce spending so much money that goods and services suppliers couldn't keep up with demand. So they increased prices. That wasn't the case then in the 1970s, and it's not the case now. Then, rising oil prices were blamed for the inflation. Now, supply chain interruptions are blamed. You know the arguments today. Semiconductor shortages, new car shortages, bottlenecks at the main U.S. ports in unloading container ships, 30-40 days of unloading cruising around just outside the ports as COVID protocols result in much slower freight unloading and reloading. And even truck driver shortages are blamed today, as well as any restaurant closures that did occur during the COVID period that we're still in. But there are at least two differences between the stagflation environment 50 years ago and the one today. Back then, the federal debt for the entire decade of the 1970s was under $1 trillion. Today, it's approximately $30 trillion, heading to $40 trillion in several more years. Secondly, the 10-year Treasury note then yielded between 7 and 8%, and that was for most of the 1970s. Today, the interest rate is just over 1%, or actually 1.3%. Remember the Federal Reserve controls short-term interest rates, but cannot control the important influences on the 10-year rate. The 10-year rate is a bellwether that pretty much every major investor in the world looks at multiple times during the day. And the 10-year rate is a bit of a precursor because when we get out to 20 and 30 year bonds, which the Federal Reserve is not able to control more than a few minutes or a few days because of the sheer amount that are circulating around the world, the 10 year rate is an early indicator of a spike up in interest rates. And when the spike up occurs, the long-term rates go up substantially more. When the Federal Reserve back then in the 1970s, jacked up short-term rates, they took them up to 20%. The 10-year rate went to 15%, 15% for 10-year money. But back then, the U.S. Treasury, as I mentioned, had less than $1 trillion of debt. So even if the U.S. Treasury had to pay 15 or 20% interest, it was affordable. It was 15 to 20% on a trillion dollars. I mean, it's a lot of money, but it was affordable. Today, with $30 trillion of debt, moving up to a 10% interest rate scenario, much less 15%, a 10% interest rate scenario would mean that interest rates the U.S. government would have to pay would total $3 trillion a year, 
Well, the U.S. government only collects about $3 trillion a year in total taxes. And today, it pays only about $300 billion a year of interest expense. So a major spike up in the category of the 1970s, or even outside of the 1970s, would be disastrous for U.S. payments because, as I said, today the interest expenses are less than 10% of the overall budget. That means 90% plus more goes for defense, goes for entitlement programs, and so forth. So imagine if the whole budget had to go to just pay interest. The Federal Reserve, as I mentioned in prior podcasts, has no choice but to issue more money and buy more government bonds. But before I go down that track, and and I've been down that track, as you know, there is another 50th year anniversary. It was almost exactly 50 years ago that the U.S. changed the world monetary system by refusing to exchange gold for dollars. As a result, the price of gold increased from $35 an ounce then to approximately $1,800 an ounce today. And that's over 50 times an increase. And that's pretty dramatic. But unless you happen to be a gold investor, the bigger part of the issue is not directly the gold price. What has happened since the gold exchange has been terminated back then is the Federal Reserve can issue any amount of dollars it wants to at any time. There is no limit. Gold provided a limit on a fixed exchange rate basis years ago, but there is no limit. There has not been a limit for the past 50 years. And as I mentioned in the 1970s, we had less than $1 trillion of debt. And I think you can see that with $30 trillion going to $40 trillion, that limitless money creation by the Federal Reserve has had an impact in a lot of the markets. The Fed now has printed so much money and enabled the U.S. Treasury to borrow so much debt that, in my mind, we are out of control. The debt can never be repaid, and more debt has to be issued to refinance the existing debt. Only the global financial markets will decide when enough is enough as we get closer and closer to such a crisis every day. So now we face a $30 trillion federal government debt growing to $40 trillion. Keeping firmly in mind, our mission is to help you understand where we've been, where we are, and where we are headed. We've added world-class expertise pretty directly to our podcasts. In our early podcasts, we emphasize the global financial impact of the largest money managers that they have on the daily bond, stock, and real estate markets. Recall that trillions of dollars of stocks and bonds are traded every day in the U.S. marketplace. And recall that most of the dollars are held outside the United States. Historically, most of the bond buyers have been outside the United States. That's no longer true. The Federal Reserve has really picked up that slack. But we're going to bring in today some of the money manager views into this podcast for your benefit. Last week, we featured Jeffrey Gunlock, who built one of the world's largest investment funds following the 08-09 Great Recession. He obviously read the economy and the markets very well. Today, I'm bringing in the latest analyses by Michael Gentile together with Stansbury Research. Michael is another example of reading the markets and advising high net worth clients. He's based in Canada, and he invests his own money alongside that of his clients. So, he's all in. Please access this 15 or so minute YouTube link from our SoundCloud site, Introduction to this Podcast. 
I promise in 15 minutes viewing this podcast, you will learn a lot no matter your background. I'm also introducing you to Jim Richards and Keith McCulloch. Jim has had senior positions at Citibank, long-term capital management, and Caxton Associates. As a general counsel for the hedge fund, long-term capital management, he successfully negotiated the $3.6 billion rescue of the firm via the Federal Reserve in 1998. We covered this also in a prior podcast. Rickards worked on Wall Street for 35 years, and later he became the senior managing director of Tangent Capital Partners, a merchant bank based in New York, and also the senior managing director for market intelligence at Omnis, a technical professional and scientific consulting firm in McLean, Virginia. Keith McCulloch is the founder and the head of Hedgeye, H-E-D-G-E-Y-E. Hedgeye actually advises global hedge funds on reading the markets and investments. So his advice is multiplied through many investment managers. Prior to founding Hedgeye, Keith built a track record as a successful hedge fund manager at the Carlisle Blue Wave Partners Hedge Fund, Magnetar Capital, Falcon Hedge Partners, and Dawson Herman Capital Management. He got his start as an institutional equity analyst at Credit Suisse First Boston. Many of Wall Street's most successful money managers today rely on Hedgeye Risk Management's team of over 40 analysts to help them navigate the global financial markets. And I will repeat what I'm sure you totally know, that I'm not promoting anyone in these podcasts as their advice is either freely available if you know where to look on YouTube, or it's so expensive that our listening audience would not be candidates for clients. So this is uh, definitely not promotional. I want to bring their views to you, and the views I'm bringing via the YouTube videos are days, if not several weeks old. So they're very current, and and that's why I'm introducing you to their views. And the YouTube that is posted on the UCLA Extension podcast site, and as well as on the SoundCloud site, is particularly helpful as it covers many of today's issues, both in terms of our present environment and additionally lessons learned from the 1970s onward. Finally, I'll reference Bill Gross, who founded and headed the largest investment fund in the world for U.S. Treasury securities. Interestingly, this fund was also founded 50 years ago and today manages over $2 trillion of bond investments, but has been extending investments into a number of real estate-related areas, which is a message in itself. Bill retired in 2019 from PIMCO and also from the Janus Funds, which he headed later in terms of investment management. He retired to focus on managing his personal assets and private charitable foundation. Needless to say, Bill Gross was pretty successful. I think his last year with PIMCO, he received a bonus payment of about a quarter of a billion dollars. So he obviously was very successful from the day the company was founded in 1970 or so. Throughout his career, Bill Gross received numerous awards, including Morningstar's Fixed Income Manager of the Decade for 2000 to 2009 and Fixed Income Manager for the Year for 1998, 2000, and 2007. He was the first portfolio manager inducted into the Fixed Income Analyst Hall of Fame in 1996. And it really goes on and on what his accomplishments have been. So I'm going to stop it here for this podcast and really get to what his thoughts are. 
I'm really quoting some of his interviews and some of his presentations over the past several months. First of all, he believes that quantitative easing is about to reverse. And in his words, it's more than obvious that the $120 billion a month Federal Reserve deluge, that is their purchasing of mortgage-backed securities and related securities, will probably end sometime in the middle of next year. And he also expects that inflation is going to continue well higher than 2%. That will leave a remainder of 600 to $700 billion a year of treasury and security debt someone else is going to have to buy, given that the Federal Reserve is pulling back from buying those securities. And I've mentioned this in prior podcasts, but the foreign central banks that pulled back buying our U.S. Treasury securities years ago, China has been a net seller of our treasury securities for close to three years in terms of their official records. Foreign central banks and investors overall have been selling U.S. Treasury securities. They used to be the major buyers. Now the Fed has had to step in. So with upcoming $1.5 to $3 trillion deficits under the present administration that we know about, in terms of their plans, the Federal Reserve is going to have to continue to basically monetize the U.S. debt, issue more money, and continue to buy the U.S. debt. Bill Gross is thinking that the 10-year Treasury will move to 2% over the next 12 months and recognizes it could move much higher than that, particularly after 12 months. But even at 2%, he maintains that that equates to a 4 to 5% loss in purchasing power and a negative total return for investors of 25 or 3%. So to say it another way, if an investor is only getting 1%, 2% on an investment in a 10-year treasury bond and inflation is 5% to pick a recent number, the loss in purchasing power is close to 3%. And that's every year, but that's also considering that inflation is going up. Recent numbers, including one today on Friday, September 10th, the inflation rate producer price index is approximately 7%, which is going to pass through the system and make the consumer price index, which under-reports inflation anyway, it's going to make consumer price index continue to grow. Bill Gross, to quote him, he has said recently that intermediate to long-term bond funds are in a trash receptacle. He said, for sure. And his question is, will stocks follow into the trash receptacle? Earnings growth had better be double-digit plus, or else they could join the garbage truck, his words. And then there's the now recent Afghanistan fallout and the incessant push of global warming that few investors seem to care about unless there's a new solar IPO to run up on the first day. There are other problems, but Bill Gross says he wants to really keep it simple. And the environment is one where the bond market, in his view, is trash. It's at a top. The stock market could be, depending upon earnings reports over the next couple of quarters. And the Afghanistan fallout, which is fallout to the world's financial markets, creates the distinct possibility that the U.S. dollar will be looked at in a much weaker vein, even though it's the reserve currency. They all push toward higher interest rates, in his view, and that's what he's preparing for. I'll talk about BlackRock in the next podcast. BlackRock is the largest money manager in the world. They have almost 10 
trillion dollars that they manage. And for a perspective that is roughly equivalent to 5% or so of the combined world stock and bond markets. So when they buy or sell, they can have an explosive impact on individual markets, whether they be stocks, bonds, real estate, geographical areas like the US, Europe, Asia, and so forth. And we'll discuss their views next week. Happy 50th. Be cautious. Look forward to 51 in two weeks. Take care. Be safe. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.